the way we're going to do it today is that I'm going to start us off on the verses, at least try to. Uh, and then a lot of the weight is going to be on y'all this morning. Uh, but that's good. You know, lift up, lift up your voices, lift up your praises uh, to the God that has created us, that has saved us. Uh, and I just want to encourage y'all to do that this morning. <coughs>
where we confess our sins to the Lord. And um, before I do that, I wanted to just uh, make you aware that every other Thursday night, uh, a group of men come here at 9 o'clock at night, and we sit around in a circle, and we confess sins to one another. And over the last several months of doing this, uh, I've gotten to know some of the men in this church far better because we've exposed our struggles to one another. Uh, and too often in our world today, we don't confess sins because we don't want to admit that we have fault. We all have faults. Um, and it's a good practice as a church to be real with one another and confess sin. Um, so let's pray together. And I'm going to give you just a moment to reflect on your week. Reflect on the things of your life that you've done that you are not proud of, that you have forsaken, and you have fallen short of the glory of God. And confess those to a holy God who will cleanse you of all unrighteousness and forgive you of your sins. Take this time to reflect just a moment before I pray. Lord, you are so patient with us, not wishing that any of us would perish, but that all would reach repentance, or that we would reach repentance, that we would reach the understanding, Lord, that we have fallen short, that we would be cut to the heart with an understanding of our sin and the weight of that, Lord, and Lord, that we would expose those to, to you, that we would, we would confess those to you. And recognize and feel the warmth, Lord, of your forgiveness. And I pray for, Lord, for us as, as, as people, Lord. I know what we ha we're individuals, Lord. We struggle with different things. But as a body, as, as a group of people who come together to worship you, Lord, we have sins, Lord, in our hearts. We have things that our hearts wear. We have hardened our hearts towards. Things that we have hold dear to ourselves and not have allowed you, Lord, to be Lord over those things, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would be Lord over our lives. And Lord, that we would confess the sins in our lives, Lord, that we have basically created idols, Lord, that we have uh, created these, these things, Lord, that we desire and that we worship, Lord, and that we have held to ourselves, that we've kept to ourselves, Lord, that we need to own up to. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us, Lord, that you would that you would remove these idols in our hearts. Lord, that we would repent. And Lord, that we would look to you as our only God and our only Lord. Lord, we praise you, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we pray that you would confess us of we would, you would that you would forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>
You may be seated. Good morning, church. Good to be here on a cold January day. Maybe a little chilly. Um, at this point in our service, we come to our declaration of pardon. It's when we recall the good news of Jesus Christ. And today we read from 1 John chapter 2. It reads as this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. By Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can be forgiven of our sins, and given a righteousness that is not our own. Church of God, know that in Jesus Christ your faith has made you well and that your sins are forgiven, and that he who began a good work in you will complete it. If you would, bow your heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for a day such as this that we can call upon your name. We can lift your name high and rejoice in the work that you have done in your Son. We ask that you would prepare our hearts now to continue to worship you, whether it be through giving or song or sitting under the teaching of your word. Would you hush our hearts and grant us peace and rest in you, that we would find our joy, not in things of the world, but in what you have done for us. Lord, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
You can all be seated. Josh is in here, so we'll borrow his. As a drink stand. I'm sure he won't mind. So, um, uh, if I could have our kids come on up, we're going to do our children's Bible verse after we do our offering. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I'm out of order. But I'll tell you what, we're going to go ahead and do it. <laughs> Give me the children's memory verse, Matt. Please and thank you. Our children's memory verse for today, if you guys can say it along with me, if you've been memorizing it, is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All right, I'm going to pray over our children, and they're going to go with their teaching. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for all of these children that are up here with me, Lord, and uh, Lord, for the joy that it is to our church uh, to see such, uh, such life, such energy um, in our congregation as demonstrated by these children. Lord, I pray that as these children go to their class, that they will learn, uh, Lord, what the scripture says about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and what can be true in their lives, and Lord, that you would lead them in eternal life. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, you guys, head back there with Mr. Jacob. And now, we'll take up our offering. My apologies. Our offertory prayer today, and you would read the underlined portion with me, is this. God of every good and perfect gift, our gifts are not always good, and they are always imperfect. We give knowing that our motives are mixed and our mission is unclear. Still, we offer these efforts with boldness, knowing that your love is stronger than our impurities and imperfection. Through Jesus Christ, amen. 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 All right, if I could get Robert and David, or uh, Matt, Adam and David to come on up here with me. And I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take up our offering. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for this service. I pray right now as we take up our offering in this portion of our service as we give, Lord, as we worship you by giving of our, our monies, Lord, this is us offering back to you that which you've already blessed us with. Lord, I pray that you would take this that we offer, Lord, as we have stated in our offertory prayer, imperfectly and oftentimes with unclear motives, and the Lord, you would use it to further your kingdom. We may not know what you're going to do with the use of our funds, but Lord, you do, and I pray that we would offer them up freely to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, this is a new building, and it has been occupied for a long time. 
by a lot of other people. And so there was just a lot of things that needed to be done to the building, cleaned out, and we got a lot of that done. Uh, and so it's an exciting time for our church, I think especially as we are uh, seeing um, all of that stuff kind of transition and seeing the church kind of transform into um, kind of what, what we want it to be, making it our own. And so it's a pretty cool, pretty cool time for us as we uh, enjoy this new building that the Lord has blessed us with. So Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54 is where we're going to be today. And this section of text, uh, I think, fits so perfectly within the sections uh, that we have already read in this chapter of the book of Luke. It fits so perfectly in this chapter because uh, what has been going on in this chapter as we have been uh, reading through, seeing Jesus interacting with the people, the, the um, stories that he has told, the illustrations he's made, the points that he has is giving to these uh, these people, primarily Jews, uh, Jesus is left and right kind of exposing what it means to be a true follower of Christ, what it means to have true faith versus what it means uh, not to have true faith. And this, this portion of text fits in line so perfectly with this. Uh, Luke, being led by the Holy Spirit, uh, put this portion of text in this section of Scripture for a reason. Uh, you may not realize that's this, but a lot of uh, what we read in the Gospels is not in a chronological order. Sometimes we think that it's just we're hearing it as exactly the order that things happen in the life of Jesus, but that's not actually the case. And you can see this as you look at different Gospels. You can see things happening in different places. Actually, what, what is happening is that the Gospel writers, led by the Holy Spirit, take these, these events, these stories in the life of Jesus, and place them strategically in their book, in order to illustrate a, a point for us, in order to draw out a theme in the text oftentimes. And that's what Luke is doing here for us in this text as well. It's a continuation of the theme that Jesus is explaining in these sections what true faith is and what it's not. In this chapter already, we've seen Jesus explain how true faith is not mere moral reformation, as Matt uh, taught us. We see Jesus speaking of repentance that comes along with true faith as he speaks of the sign of Jonah. He describes true faith as light in the midst of darkness. And now our attention is turned directly on the antagonists in this story. And the antagonists in many stories throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees. Jesus speaks to them very forcefully, very directly, very truthfully as he uses these Pharisees, as an example, to demonstrate the difference between a hard heart and a heart that has been changed by the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 37 and read down through verse 54 at the end of the chapter. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. 
Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers asked him, Teachers, or answered him, Teachers, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens too hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you blind, blind, build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hinder, hinder others who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help today. Lord, we need your help as we seek to understand your word. Seek to understand what you would have us to learn in Luke chapter 11. Lord, I pray that you would help me as I speak. Lord, help me to, Lord, to take what I have prepared to deliver it clearly in a way that is helpful, in a way that is true, in a way that is right. And Lord, I pray that the hearers of this message, Lord, would receive it. Lord, that you would do the work of softening hearts. And Lord, that today we would see the difference between a heart that is hard and a heart that is changed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the title of my sermon today is Hard Words to Hard Hearts. Hard Words to Hard Hearts. And it's pretty clear why I chose this. As we read this section of Scripture you will scarcely see a time when Jesus speaks so forcefully, so clearly, so aggressively towards these Pharisees, towards the, the Jewish leaders, uh, than what we see here in this passage, using such language that is so strong. And he does so uh, in the midst of these Pharisees, these lawyers, even at their house so boldly, so clearly to proclaim to them and expose their hard hearts. And as we read through this, this passage, I want to point out for us four attributes of a heart that is hard. Four attributes of a hard heart. The first of all being, a hard heart loves exterior acts. In verses 37 through, 30, through 41, we see Jesus has now been invited to come and dine with the Pharisee. This Pharisee comes, we don't know the motives of the Pharisee. We don't know if he is seeking to entrap Jesus. That might be the case. It could be the case that he genuinely wanted Jesus to come and dine with him because of his reputation as a, as a teacher. But whatever the case, this Pharisee offers Jesus to come and dine with him, to eat with him and some of the other Pharisees and religious leaders. And it takes no time at all before these Pharisees are already upset at something that Jesus has done. They are already indignant about something Jesus has done. Dinner has not even been served yet, and they're up in arms over this act that Jesus has failed to do. 
In this particular instance, they're mad at Jesus because he did not cleanse his hands before dinner, before they sat down to eat. And some of you might be kind of wondering, well, I mean, that seems like a pretty common like, thing, right, to wash your hands before dinner. Like, some of us might actually be a little weirded out if we notice someone not washing their hands before dinner. If you've ever been in the bathroom with someone at a restaurant and you see them like leave the bathroom without washing their hands, I think we all agree that that's pretty gross, right? It's kind of nasty. And so we might tend to think in that way when, with regards to what's going on here. You think, oh, well, the Pharisees were just kind of grossed out that Jesus didn't wash his hands before dinner, if that makes sense. But that's not actually what's going on here, and Jesus knows this. The reason these Pharisees are upset is not because they're worried about the germs that are on Jesus' hands. They're not worried about it being gross or disgusting. The reason they were upset is because of what Jesus didn't do in washing his hands. It was a symbolic act. It was a part of their Jewish tradition to wash their hands as a, as a way to symbolically cleanse them of sin. It represented holiness. It represented a cleansing from all the defilements of the world. This was a, a Jewish custom. It was not a, a Jewish law. It wasn't something that was in uh, Scripture that they they were surprised at Jesus not doing. No, this was something that was added to Scripture. This was a Jewish custom that Jesus failed to do. In reality, it was just a mere empty act that these religious men, these Pharisees, would do to demonstrate their false piety, to, to kind of pat themselves on the back and, and, and show everyone, ah, oh, see, I am holy, I am washing my hands, I am cleansed of, of all the defilements of the world around me. But in reality, it meant nothing. It actually, it, it kind of reminds me of, uh, so I work at a Catholic hospital, um, as Catholic as a hospital can be, it's really uh, just a hospital that has a Catholic name at this point. However, uh, many of the nurses that I work with and techs that I work with um, call themselves Roman Catholics. And if you know, on Ash Wednesday, uh, what Roman Catholics do is they take a little bit of ash and they put it on their forehead in the shape of a cross, or they, they have the priest put it on for them. And this tradition, this this act is a kind of a symbolic act. It actually started as a, a decent motives. It started as a way to represent a mourning of our sin and, and an, a recognition of the mortality of humanity that is the consequence of our sin. And it was it's put on their forehead in the shape of a cross as a remembrance of, of the cost of forgiveness of our sin. That Jesus Christ came died on the cross for our sin. There actually is is pretty significant and good meaning to, to why this was started in the, in the first place. However, as I saw so many of my coworkers who, other than, other than claiming to be Catholic, had no affiliation with Christ, no connection with Jesus, lining up to get ash on their forehead, I kind of took that day and decided, I want to ask these people like why they do this, because at that point, I really didn't know either. So I thought, oh, might be a good conversation anyway. And, uh, and I asked Nurse after nurse after nurse who had ash on the forehead, why they did that? And nurse after nurse after nurse could give me no answer. Some of them tried. They said, oh, well, you know, it's Catholic tradition. You know, we always do that because it's Ash Wednesday, you know. Really gave me no answer at all. Some of them were pretty honest and said, yeah, I don't know why I do it. Um, there were some that, that maybe were on the right track. They knew it had to do with, uh, they would say, oh, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, you know, and, and things like that. But in reality, for most of them there, this was a, an empty, symbolic act that meant nothing. It was, it was empty of any meaning because what was taking place on the inside was nothing. They were, they were engaging in this exterior act without any heart change. 
unless we think we can limit this to, to Roman Catholics only, I promise you there are people that have come into this very church when Redeemer Fellowship has our service and have taken the juice and the bread that we offer at the end of service thinking that that somehow is going to do them some good, having no idea what it means, having no heart change. If you were to ask them the significance of the Lord's Supper, they would have no answer for you. This is not something that we can limit merely to the Pharisees or to other religions or other denominations or other people. This is something that happens in our churches, in Southern Baptist churches, in Redeemer Fellowship Church. These empty symbolic acts mean nothing. And Jesus cuts right to the core with them with this simple yet profound illustration of cleaning a bowl. He points out the silliness, the foolishness that it would be to take a bowl that you were going to eat food out of that's filthy dirty and to wash the outside real good with soap and water and do nothing to the inside. It's silly. It's foolishness. That, that bowl would be worthless to eat out of it is if it's still covered in dirt and muck and grease and mold on the inside. No one would eat out of that cup. That cup, that dish would be useless. Jesus points this out in the Pharisees, and the same is true of us. When we avoid sin, when we do good deeds, when we engage in ritual acts, it is complete foolishness if we are still filthy on the inside. This is why Jesus cuts right to the chase with these Pharisees in verse 40 when he calls them out and says, You fools. This is no small rebuke that Jesus gives the Pharisees to, to call them by this name, to call them fools. This is not a word to be thrown around lightly. In fact, in Matthew, Jesus gives pretty stern warnings to anyone who would use this name about their brother. And yet here, Jesus uses this title so straightforwardly to describe these Pharisees as fools. The reason these men were foolish was because they went to great, great lengths with regards to their body, with their exterior, cleansing their hands, putting on garb, putting on a show, and yet they had neglected their very souls. And Jesus created both of them. Jesus created them body and soul. Jesus created us body and soul. The reason they were fools is because they had completely neglected their soul for the sake of exterior bodily acts. They started in the wrong place. They started with the outside before ever working on the inside. They prioritized external acts to the detriment of internal cleansing. Because the root of the problem with the human condition is a hard heart, full of greed, full of wickedness. And that's where action must first be taken. In the book of Deuteronomy, the, the, the book that is probably, as well as anything, uh, known for all of its rules, regulations, right? I mean, Deuteronomy's full of them. If you flip through Deuteronomy and just like stick your finger in, you're probably going to find some sort of law about uh, war or about uh, eating or about what you can wear or, or, or whatever. And there's, there's, it's filled with, with laws and regulations. But in Deuteronomy chapter 10, before getting into all of those laws and rules and regulations, exterior things, we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 16. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord with I, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, 
To the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. <coughs> Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. The concern, even here in Deuteronomy, that the Lord has for his people is first and foremost with their heart. That's where transformation has to start. This is what the Lord is telling his people before giving them this long list of laws and regulations. What needs to take place before all else is heart transformation. The heart transformed is the one that naturally produces outward deeds, not the other way around. You cannot change your outward deeds in order to change your heart. But the heart transformed produces outward deeds, produces good works. That's why Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out, because that's what exposes his heart. Point number two, a hard heart is marked by pride. Now, I've added this point in uh, as a point itself, but if I'm being honest, uh, pride itself could serve as essentially the heading for all of the rest of these problems, right? I mean, pride essentially is the root of all of our sin, the root of, of all the evil things that we do. It always comes back to pride. I had an uh, elder at the church I worked at in Virginia for a while uh, told me one time, if, if you ask someone who's like dealing with something, dealing with some sort of sin, some sort of issue, if you ask them why five times, you will eventually get to pride. Whatever it is that we are doing wrong, whatever sin we're dealing with, eventually it gets back to pride. In fact, pride is the very thing that turned um, the devil into the devil. Pride is the very thing that led Adam and Eve to sin in the garden in the first place. The desire to be like God, the desire to be more than they were. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this in his section on pride. There is one vice of which man in the world is free. Or excuse me, which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. And those are such true words about pride, right? Such true words. And even though he makes the point, yeah, hardly anyone who's not a Christian will ever admit that they have it in themselves. And even as Christians, don't we fail to see it in ourselves? Oh, I do. Left and right, I just think that, like, I'm not, I, don't, I don't deal with pride. I'm pretty humble in a lot of ways. I don't deal with that. But even in doing that, I mean, there it is, right? It's, it's unavoidable. Pride is the sin that most saturates human lives, and Jesus brings it right to the surface in the lives of these Pharisees. In this section of our text, Jesus begins pronouncing woes on the Pharisees for their hardness of heart and their false religion. When we think about this word woe, as Jesus is pronouncing 
woes on the Pharisees. This isn't a word that necessarily we're that familiar with. It's not a word you hear all that often unless you're reading Shakespeare or something like that. Um, but this word, uh, when we hear it today, or when Shakespeare uses it even, is, is most often uh, kind of used to express sorrow or, or a feeling of, of anguish over something. And that is a true way of understanding this, this word, but the way Jesus is using it here, he is using it as a way to where it is not only a, a saying, him saying, experiencing sorrow, but him pronouncing upon these Pharisees. This act of pronouncing woes on the Pharisees is not simply a sentimental expression of sorrow, the way some might commonly think of the word. But Jesus was using this word as a declaration of judgment. It carried with it the connotation not just of, I'm sorrowful for you, but this is what other people will say of you when they hear of your end. That's kind of the connotation. That's kind of the weight that these, these woes that Jesus is pronouncing upon the Pharisees. This is what other people will think of you when they hear of your end. He starts by exposing their lack of justice and love of God. While they take such pride in their faithfulness to the external aspects of the law, but in reality, these men who have made such a reputation for themselves on their knowledge of the scriptures and being experts in knowing the Old Testament, they have failed to understand what God required of his people. Even though he states it so explicitly in the Old Testament. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it is said so clearly. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is the exact opposite of what the Pharisees were. Literally, all three of these aspects of what the Lord requires in Micah, Jesus explicitly tells them here that they are not doing these things. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. They were failing across the board on these things. And Jesus gets right at their lack of humility and exposes their pride even more in verse 43 when he says this, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Jesus was not condemning the best seat in the synagogue or even greetings in the marketplace. Those are not bad things in and of themselves. What Jesus was condemning in these Pharisees was the love of such things. That's what they were guilty of. The worship of these things. And all of this leads Jesus to pronounce perhaps the most severe judgment on the Pharisees yet, declaring them to be unmarked graves. As we hear this, we might think of, of the parallel verses to this in Matthew where Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. We might be more common with that phrase. He uses this to describe them saying, on the outside you are beautiful, you are, are clean, you are dressed up, you you do the right things, but inside you are nothing but dead bones. Inside they are dead. They are spiritually dead, though beautiful on the outside. This connotation of a whitewashed tomb. And this is true, and Jesus is, is kind of hinting at that as well, but he goes beyond that here in Luke. Not only is he declaring them to be spiritually dead, but he's also alluding to a Jewish law which prohibited people from touching a corpse or touching a grave, a grave so that they would not become ceremonially unclean. Jesus is alluding to that law when he 
tells them that they are unmarked graves. Because of this law, the, the Jews would always mark their graves very clearly. They were serious about this to where everyone would know that they were coming up on a grave. That there was a dead person here, there was a grave here. So that no one would accidentally be uh, unclean or defiled by coming in contact with this grave. So in this case, Jesus is declaring that not only are the Pharisees spiritually dead themselves, but that like unmarked graves, everyone who comes into contact with them, with them unknowingly becomes defiled as well. They're defiling everyone around them with their teaching, with their false religion, with their pride, with their self-righteousness. In other words, the Pharisees and their prideful self-righteous religion are to be avoided by all. Point number three, a hard heart rejects God's word. In verses 45 through 52 of our text, Jesus turns his attention now to another group of people who are eating with them. We might not have realized that they haven't come up yet, but there's another group of, of people besides the Pharisees who are here eating with Jesus. Jesus was condemning the Pharisees, and as he was doing so, a, a lawyer of the lawyers that were there uh, speaks up and says, uh, excuse me, Jesus, you know, as you're pronouncing these woes, as you're condemning these Pharisees, you're kind of condemning us also. So Jesus turns and pronounces judgment of the, upon them of their own. So the, the lawyers, we might be more familiar with their name, uh, scribes, were the ones who were responsible for interpreting and enforcing all the Jewish laws and Jewish customs. And Jesus condemns them because of the great burden that they had put on Israel. His judgment of them was that they were insistent on such a strict adherence to the law, strict adherence to the rules, to the customs, to the regulations. All, everything they could come up with, they insisted, must be obeyed seriously to the point that it was a burden that no one could possibly bear. They were imposing a severe burden of the law, of regulations, of requirements upon the Jewish people, but even they themselves were unable to keep it and didn't even try. He says that you impose upon them a, a, a burden, uh, a load, load people burdens, hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. They knew they couldn't keep these regulations. They knew they couldn't obey the laws that they were coming up with. Yet they insisted it upon the people, and Jesus condemns them for that. Jesus goes even further with the lawyers and does something, I think, really interesting in this next section that we need to pick up on. He begins talking about them as building the tombs of the prophets. And he says this in 47 and 48. He says, Woe to you! For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed him, and you build their tombs. <coughs> He's connecting these lawyers and these Pharisees directly to their ancestors who are responsible for the murder of the prophets. He connects them directly with those who killed the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus tells them that they are as guilty of killing these prophets as the one who actually did the murder. He says it was as if they were co-conspirators building their tombs while the others went out to do the deed. 
They were just as responsible for the murder of the prophets as the one who did the murdering. They are guilty of rejecting, murdering the prophets in the same way as their fathers because they have rejected their teaching and have taken only parts of the scriptures that they find to be useful for their own gain, namely the law. In doing this, in rejecting the, the words of the prophets, the prophets of God, they are therefore rejecting the very word of God itself and are as guilty of killing the prophets as the ones who did. This is only compounded by the fact that they not only rejected the prophets, they also rejected the Lord's Messiah whom the prophets foretold would come, Jesus Christ. They not only rejected the word of God in written form, but they rejected the very word of God in flesh. They rejected Christ. This, above all, led to the condemnation that Jesus says to them in verse 52. Verse 52 says this, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. In other words, they were not only outside the kingdom of God, but they were hindering other people by their false teaching as well. They were deceiving people, directing them away from Christ, and therefore away from the kingdom of God and away from eternal life, away from true knowledge. Because the hard heart rejects God's word. Only the changed heart receives it. Which leads us to our fourth and final point. A hard heart that's hostile towards truth. So as we close this last section in verses 53 and 54, I want you to notice the response of the Pharisees to what Jesus has told them. To Jesus' condemnation. To his pronouncement of woes upon them. They respond in the same way that all of those who have hard hearts will respond. They respond with anger and hostility. It says in 53 and 54, they went, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They were angry. They were furious. They were hostile. In fact, they were waiting for a chance to catch Jesus, trying to trap him so that they might take their revenge. In his commentary on the book of Luke, the Bidi Anyabwele says this, and I think that it is just so helpful and so profound. He says, We know what we prefer by whether we accept the hard truth gladly or become enemies of the truth teller. When a hard truth hits a hard heart, you get sparks and resistance, but you cannot soften the truth or it ceases to be the truth. A hard heart must be broken. So the question is then, how was a hard heart broken? Well, if you look in Jeremiah chapter 23, we see the answer in verses 28 and 29. The prophet Jeremiah says this, Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? This is awesome. This is the reality. The fact of the matter is, you cannot change your heart. And as I have stood up here in front of you speaking about having a hard heart and the, and the problems of having a hard heart and the dangers of having a hard heart, and the, Jesus condemned these Pharisees for having a hard heart. 
Now I am here to tell you, you cannot change a hard heart. You cannot cure a heart of stone. But the word of God, <coughs> and in fact, the word of God does. Listen, you might hear the truth that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees here in, in chapter 11. And you might realize that it applies directly to you. Maybe you've seen the hardness of your own heart exposed in the life of the Pharisees. And let me encourage you today, if that's you, you are not alone. You are not alone. I see my own hardness of heart rearing its head as I read what Jesus says to these Pharisees. I know my heart. I know my desire for approval. I know my pride. To identify with the Pharisees here in this story does not mean that you have to be condemned along with them. The difference is how you respond to, this, to the truth that's been spoken. The difference is how you respond. If you walk out of here today angry over what I have said, angry over what I've preached, over what the text has said, then you know what? Maybe you have reason to be concerned over your salvation. But if you have felt the truth of what Jesus has spoken to you today and know that it applies to you, then repent and trust in Christ and his righteousness. That's what the Pharisees should have done. That's why Jesus gave them the sign of Jonah, told them of the sign of Jonah. Javante told us last week what that was. It was a sign of repentance. You remember in the story of Jonah what happens? Jonah goes to the Ninevites, and he doesn't want to. Why does he not want to? Because he knows that if they repent, the Lord will save them. So he goes, and he declares to them, the Lord will destroy you. He has seen what you, were done, you have done, and in three days, he is going to destroy you. That's a stiff condemnation. Seems pretty sure. Seems pretty scary. And yet, what do the people of Nineveh do? They repent. They repent of their sin, and what happens to them? They're saved. The Lord saves them when they repent of their sin. So to everyone in here, and, and mind you, this is to Christians and non-Christians alike. If you have seen the hardness of your heart exposed in this text, my call to you, my admonition, my, my prayer is that you would repent and believe in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, Lord just so weighed down by what you have said to the, to the Pharisees, to the scribes. Lord, I know for me, I recognize my hardness of heart. Lord, and I recognize that only you have the ability to soften hearts. Lord, I pray today that for me, for my brothers and sisters in here, Lord, for those in here who have never believed in the gospel, that they would hear these words of the Pharisees that thought themselves righteous, that thought themselves good, that did outward things in order to be righteous, in order to be justified. Lord, if that is, describes anyone in here today, Lord, I pray that here today we would repent of our sin and call out to you for forgiveness. Lord, we know... We know the truth that was declared to us in our assurance of grace. That if we trust in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross on our behalf, we will have eternal life. 
We no longer have to bear the weight, the guilt, the shame of our sin, of our pride. Or we can cast it all upon him. He has taken it for us. The consequences do us for our sin. Lord, the same sins of these Pharisees, Jesus takes freely on the cross. Takes our punishment for them. I pray that we would trust in him. Trust in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take up the Lord's Supper now. Uh, if I could have Matt and David come and help me. Supper. So we have a few things that we always like to say before we take the Lord's Supper, and I talked a little bit about it in my sermon. If, if you're about to take the Lord's Supper today and you have no idea what it means, you should probably not take the Lord's Supper. Come and talk to us. It doesn't mean you're not a believer, but we want you to understand the importance of why we do this. And if we can't explain it well enough uh, in the service here, uh, then come and talk to us afterwards about what it means. Why do we do that? It could mean that, that you have never experienced the forgiveness that is found in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Sacrifice for us on the cross. But we would encourage you to come, come talk to us afterwards about what it means. If you are in here today and you have sin that you have yet to repent of, yet to seek reconciliation for, we would encourage you also not to take the Lord's Supper, uh, but to wait, confess your sin, and then take. If you need to confess your sin to a brother or sister in Christ and can't do that here today, then just wait. Go confess your sin and come back next week and join us in the fellowship of the Lord's Supper. And finally, if you are not a member of a local church, baptized into the church, uh, we would encourage you also uh, not to take. We here at Redeemer Fellowship firmly believe that it is the call of Scripture upon our lives to be committed to the church and to be baptized in the local church as the Lord has commanded us. So if that does not describe you, then again, we would ask that you not take. But after all of that, I would encourage you, church, here today, as we take the Lord's Supper together, take it remembering what it is that Christ has done for us on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for this time as we take the Lord's Supper, Lord, that we would remember what you have done for us. That the bread represents your body that was broken, the blood the juice represents the blood that was shed on the cross. So that we would believe and trust in that for our salvation. Your work on the cross. Not this symbolic act that we do. Not this, uh, any ritualistic outward things that we participate in. But trust solely in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for salvation. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a um, statement on uh, the Lord's Supper, real quick, for a recourse. The Lord's Supper of the Lord, or the Supper of the Lord Jesus, was instituted by Him the same night He was betrayed. It is to be observed in His churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of Himself in His death. It is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in Him, and their further engagement in and to all the duties they owe Him. The supper is to be a bond and pledge of their communion with Christ and each other.
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and following says this. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come on, Sam. Christ, 
the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you might do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. Thank you. 